This episode is sponsored by the Star Jelly Files podcast. So what have we been listening to lately? We've been listening to the Star Jelly Files. It's a weekly science fiction and fantasy podcast written, produced, and voiced by Elizabeth Hamblett. The Star Jelly Files is about the universes that we, up until now, haven't been able to see. But now the veil has been lifted, and it's time to tell stories from behind that veil. If you enjoy great storytelling, if you like getting to know the unknown, if you want to see what the powers that be have been hiding from us until now, the Star Jelly Files is for you. Go peek behind the veil and see what amazing discoveries you make on the Star Jelly Files. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts. Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm having a small stroke. Actually, and I'm Amber. We call them stronks <laughs> where I'm from, though. Oh, dear. Stronks. So we are here with your weekly dose of historical true crime. We're going to get into part two of Amy Archer Gilligan, who is not a good person. But before we do that, we'd like to tell you about something you should do. And that's go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where you can find so many, well over 70 bonus episodes that we drop for our listeners every week. Those are our old tiny Crimeys, and you get to hear uh, Scott <laughs> attempt to hit that note on the register. <laughs> I got a voice like a white Barry White. <laughs> what? white shouldn't, Barry. shouldn't I be the white Barry White? Shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, I'm not here to fight that fight again. But not, not, not going to fight that fight about not being in the white Barry White. Exactly. I'm not going to fight that fight about being the white Barry White. <laughs> That's a new tongue twister. I'm Gloria. very sorry that he died, but I take some solace knowing that God needed laid more than I did. <laughs> so, yes, you can hear wonderful gems like that from Scott and Amber and I over on the Patreon. We have our weekly tinies and then monthly we have the extra extra. So you can hear us we generally will do some sort of a theme sometimes we'll go a little bit further in time than we normally do sometimes we'll talk about a book this time and we just recorded it today it was a super fun fun episode we did our birth year murders so murders that happened or you know crimes that happened in our birth years and then there was this weird thing that happened we don't normally collude with these topics we normally go our own way and and just pick something and surprise the other two but we happened to be talking and and scott was like oh i, I think i'm gonna pick this for my birth year and i started looking at mine kind of thinking maybe i could find something similar in my birth year and i was like oh well there we go i have something and, and amber found something too so there's two themes actually it's both our birth years and sort of uh horror entertainment type crimes so they, they definitely involve horror entertainment that you might be familiar with that's horror with an h not horror entertainment <laughs> that's a whole different show welcome to craigslist 
<laughs> so $5 a month gets you that five bonus episodes every month, a buck an episode. You cannot beat that deal. So you should come on over and check that out. And uh, we'll also uh, give you a shout out at the end of the show. I will probably sing your name and uh, dogs will probably start barking somewhere in, in just abject terror. <laughs> and it's worth it. So all that aside, let's continue talking about Amy Archer Gilligan. A quick recap from last week's show. Amy Archer Gilligan, uh, she lived in Connecticut in the early 1900s. She lost two husbands in four years, not suspicious at all, all while running a proto-nursing home kind of thing. I ain't going to trust Grandpa with somebody clumsy enough to lose two husbands. Right? A lot of the nursing home residents died, too, proving that you shouldn't trust Grandpa with somebody who's just lost two husbands in four years. Uh, and these deaths sometimes occurred after the, the residents lent her large amounts of money. The sister of one of her victims finally got authorities to investigate the home, and after this wonderful cloak-and-dagger middle-of-the-night exhumation of two deceased patients from the home, their names were Franklin Andrews and Anonymous, because the second patient was not named for several months, they finally arrested Amy Archer Gilligan in 1916. The state's attorney said that they had evidence that pointed to Archer Gilligan having committed many other murders. And a state policeman said on the day of arrest that they were thinking around 20 or so. But the papers were already saying maybe more like 48 to 60. So that's a body count. Well, it is a hell of a body count. Mm -hmm. It really is. So after they arrested her, police searched the home and took documents that included some contracts signed by her clients, or just a reminder from last week, they called them inmates mm -hmm. for her fine. don't like that. I hate it, yeah. They also took quite a few bottles from the home. So in the press after the arrest, there was a lot of press. This was big, big news in Connecticut and then spread to go nationally. And, I mean... There was like a four-page spread starting on page one in the Hartford Corinth that was like so many different details and articles and sub-articles. And I, I swear they had, they had graphics and charts. It was, <laughs> it was amazing. And it came out that she had bought two ounces of arsenic for rats, of course, just four days before the death of Franklin Andrews. Uh, over the course of nine months, at one single store, she purchased two pounds of arsenic. The paper did have a, a list of uh, four dates when she purchased both arsenic, well, arsenic or potash, and potash could also be used for poisoning purposes. So one of those was on February 17th. Uh, 1912, the same day as one death of an elderly woman in her home, and uh, three days before her second husband died. Hmm. Two no, pounds of arsenic, you Two pounds of arsenics, you say? <laughs> yeah. A lot of arsenics. There was also a case of a purchase in October, the year before, and there were three deaths the following month, one of which was her sister. Julia Dugan, who she was caring for, likely this was the sister who was an invalid, either 
35 or 41 years old. Again, we have discrepancies with, with birth dates and ages. And the cause of death was listed as cirrhosis and valvular heart disease. And Surprised like it said, was hysterical nonsense. <laughs> right? Exactly, yes. Uh, and like we said last week, sometimes she would... This, this is only her purchases of arsenic. Sometimes she would send patients to uh, purchase it. And even sometimes the medical examiner who signed off on the, the deaths, she would sometimes have request him, him that he pick up some arsenic for her. And Jesus. he didn't find that suspicious at all, apparently. Jesus Why Christ. do you need so much arsenic? I have 200-pound rats. To, to <laughs> be fair, the medical examiner... He knows where his bread is buttered. He's like, oh, sure, rats. That's why I'm getting it. Just keep those bodies coming so that I can keep getting a paycheck. Right, yeah. So as they started looking at previous deaths at the home, they found that a lot of the death certificates were missing information about duration of illness, which you were legally required to put on the certificate probably because the illness had just started up uh, after they ate a meal and then uh, they expired not too long afterwards. So it was quick. I guess you don't need to put it if it's only like six hours. Sudden elderly death syndrome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Archer Gilligan had told the paper a while back when there was some curiosity about the home that she could take in 18 inmates at a time, but generally had less than 10 per year. So from the paper, this makes the average number of deaths, deaths each year for five years, ending January 1st, 1916, practically equal to the number of inmates at the home at one time. So basically, you go into that home, you're not coming out except in a body bag. That's weird. That's What are the chances, huh? Yeah, yeah. And I love the, what, the, what the Hartford Current did. They did a comparison between the Archer home and the Hartford Old People's Home. So she averaged 10 patients a year and a total of 48 deaths over that five-year period. The Old People's Home averaged 64 patients per year, so more than six times Amy Archer Gilligan's number, and a total of 48 deaths. So they have a much better survival rate. <laughs> Impressive. They must be doing something right, like not putting arsenic in food. Imagine that, yes. Yeah. There were two years when the total deaths at the Archer House nearly doubled the total deaths at the old people's home. In 1912, only eight patients died at the old people's home and 15 at the Archer home. That, I mean, she's, she's doubling the, the death rates of a place that has six times as many patients as her. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> Because she's murdering them. <laughs> so as far as those beds empty, we need more people coming in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as staff at the home, she had a single maid at the house, and then her daughter and her niece helping out. Both were eighteen, and the papers started calling it the murder factory. I love it. Just put the word murder in front of anything, and I love it. <laughs> it's murder a murder pizza. It's a murder root canal. I'm in. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I know you're not. Now, the paper listed details of all the deaths since 1908 that had occurred at the home. 
Causes ranged from cerebral hemorrhage, cerebral apoplexy, chronic bronchitis, epilepsy, old age, cholera, pneumonia, heart disease. But probably the most commonly listed were cerebral apoplexy, which is a strong. And <laughs> that's called a callback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and arteriosclerosis, which is a hardening of the artery walls. The ages of these uh, victims ranged from 41, uh, a woman who died of locomotor ataxia, and, and uh, into the 90s, of course, because it's, you know, a nursing home, essentially, but also actually a killing home. And the general idea was that she had given them elderberry wine laced with poison. Now, I love elderberries. I, I miss don't think I've ever had them. Oh, elderberries are great. Elderberries come in like this... They come in like this big cluster. Uh, imagine cauliflower, but with berries on the end of it. Tiny little berries, right? Uh, I used to take elderberries straight off the tree and just stick the whole thing in my mouth and just pull them off with my teeth. So <laughs> I'd get like 30 or 40 of them. They have like a slightly sweet, slightly bitter um, really good for taking down a fever, believe it or not. If elderberries are in season, you happen to have a fever. Amazing for taking down a fever. But at the same time, elderberry jelly is just the shit. I love elderberry jam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I'm hungry for stuff. that. <laughs> As for Amy Archer Gilligan, in response to all of this, she said, quote, I am a poor, hard-working woman, and I can't understand why I am persecuted as I have been the last few years. This is a Christian work and one that is very trying as we have to put up with lots of things on account of the peculiarities of old people. You know what I just realized, though? Like, Scott and I would have been dead. Yeah. Because <laughs> she would have been like, you want some elderberry wine? And both of us are like, fuck yeah! Oh, yeah! <laughs> Please and thank you. And yes. So... The uh, her attorney, Benedict Holden, told the press that the whole case was just a tempest in a teapot and his client wasn't even preparing a defense because she didn't need one against these spurious charges. That was one of my my uh, porn names back in the day. Ben, my dick, hold it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was spurious charges for some well, reason. Well, that, was, that was one of the films I was in. That was a great series. There was like eight <laughs> or nine of those. Charges. Yeah, yeah. So, and the article describing Holden's you know, statements to the press ended by saying that he had an engagement to meet his old pal, the governor, that afternoon. So I thought that was an interesting way to end that article. They're almost saying like, oh, look who thinks he's a hot shot. Mm -hmm. My old pal, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So more exclamations take place. The Hartford Current in an editorial calls for as many to be exhumed as possible. And I have a quote from that. Disinter the bodies of Mr. Gilligan, the woman's husband, who died in agony without a previous illness. Disinter the body of the aged Guilford woman who telephoned her friends that she wanted to come home and died that night. Disinter the bodies of enough of all the 54 who died there within five years to satisfy the people of this commonwealth, whether a poor defenseless woman is being hounded and persecuted by both state and press, or whether a fiend in human form has been exacting a fearful toll of defenseless human lives. It's the second one. Spoilers. 
Yes, it is. Now, as far as exhumations, Gilligan's relatives, that would be the second husband, they opposed any exhumation of the body, but the state forced the issue, and he was finally exhumed in early July, making him the fourth exhumation at that point, because there'd been another one as well. And so they start digging into what happened, the circumstances around his death. And it's found that his will, which had left everything to Amy, was not on record at the probate court. The court refused to admit the will due to a technicality, and it comes out that the will was believed to be in Amy Archer Gilligan's handwriting. I have so little money and, and, and goods, I'm not leaving a will, I'm leaving a won't. <laughs> and this, this will had been signed the night before his death. This is not quite related to exhumations, but uh, it's just a little note that was in the paper that uh, amused me. It's about amateur sleuths, and I, I pronounced it that way because they spelled it A-M-A-T-O-O-R, uh, trying, trying to be funny, I guess. Uh, so this is about amateur sleuths about town. The only excitement during the day was furnished by the presence of a reporter of an afternoon paper, notebook in pocket, and disguised with large tortoiseshell Sherlock Holmes spectacles, sleuthing around with an air of very obvious mystery. Apparently, he spoke with no one except to converse in whispers with his faithful Watson, who dogged him around during the trip and looked thoughtfully at the ground as they passed across Windsor Green, as if he were afraid of missing a footprint. I, I had my magnifying glass here and I was looking for clues, but then the cop came by and told me to stop doing that. So I went over here and I, uh, I'm behind the house and I was looking for clues there. I got bored and just started burning ants. <laughs> so it also comes out that the medical examiner Howard King who was also frequently uh, on call to the Archer home and certified the death certificates and also as we know sometimes bought the arsenic said that uh, she would sometimes just toss all the roommate, all the inmates into a room together, at which point they would become roommates, and just tell them to fend for themselves for a while. Just here, I'll, I'll ten of you in a room and just, just to take care of yourselves, whatever. Are they roommates or are they cellies at that point? I think yeah, they're cellmates. Right? It sounds yeah. like cellmates to me. Yeah. It really does, yeah. It sounds, you know, roommate is... Uh, you, you not against your will generally, except for freshman year of college. <laughs> and then it's so against your will. Um, so, and in mid-May, a civil suit is brought by a former patient of the home, George C. Scott. Ooh. Who, I know, not that one, I don't think. Oh. Who is trying to, I don't think, trying to get back between 3000 and 3500 that he had loaned her that was the eighth such suit since her arrest. So these, these suits from, from former patients are really piling up. And since the arrest, eight uh, patients had left the home with 10 remaining. On May 18th, it was reported that an inmate at the home, Emily Gladding, who was 78, had been removed from the home by her son and was said to be in a very precarious mental state uh, her doctor said, I consider her condition extremely critical. She is mortally afraid of any woman who comes near her, and even her own daughter can't approach her. 
She continually talks of some woman in black as though she was afraid of her, although her son and myself, when we talk to her, find her rather rational. When she entered the home five months ago, her physical condition, while not of the best, as she suffered somewhat from kidney trouble, was nothing to demand particular attention. Now she seems to fear that someone is going to abuse her. So we see, why. Yeah, we see that it's not just the, the poisoning and killing. There's also abuse going on of the patients. And we had seen that in Lucy Duran's case. She was the woman who uh, they, they, the, uh, the Gilligans ended up having taken to the asylum and said that she would rather go to hell than return to the Archer home. So, but Emily Gladding, her grandson said that she'd gone into the home with plenty of clothes. And when they got her out, she had not next to nothing, not even her false teeth. Damn. They stole this woman's false teeth. Yeah. So, and Gladding would die in June and she was survived by a son and three daughters. The grand jury trial to determine indictments was pushed to September. So that meant that Amy Archer Gilligan, who of course was not allowed to seek bail as a capital murder defendant, would, or potential at this point, because there's no indictments yet, would spend the whole summer in jail. And that was where the rumors came from that, oh, she, she went insane in jail. She's, she's, she's gone bonkers in jail. You know, they, they, that was, there was a lot of that going around. They exhumed a fifth body, that of Alice Gowdy, and it's noted that George Gowdy, Alice's surviving husband, managed to get some of his money back after some wrangling between his lawyers and Archer Gilligan's. I imagine there was a lot of that. They were probably keeping her lawyers very busy (laughs) with all the former patients trying to get their money back that they had loaned her and somehow managed to survive. So, the grand jury met on September 13, 1916, and the state was looking for indictments for five murder charges, no, charges, murder charges. Meanwhile, Amy Archer Gilligan was under the observation of alienists, I love it when they use that term, determining whether she had the capacity to stand trial. I found this interesting. The accused, at least at this point in Connecticut, was allowed to question witnesses at the grand jury proceedings, although she could not actually be represented by counsel at this stage and couldn't make any statements or have anyone speak on her behalf. But just the idea of her asking questions to me is, is, of witnesses is kind of hilarious. I'm thinking of like true and fictional killers asking questions like during, during that process. Like I got the image of like Buffalo Bill from, uh, from Silence of the Lambs going like, would you care to uh, ask the witness a question? Would you fuck me? Just <laughs> dip tuck between his legs. See, I'd like I'm me. picturing going in and asking, like, do you not value your life? <laughs> do you have any uh, any children who particularly like wine of the elderberry sort? Yeah, sure. Here. <laughs> <laughs> so the Hartford Current, as they're they're summoning a potential people for the grand jury actually names the people who are summoned and publishes their names as well as their towns of origin. Although they do note that those picked for service can't be named until the court is open, but there's 24 of them and not a vagina amongst them. 
Mm-hmm. Surprise face. Bet they're all white, yeah. too. Uh, you would be correct, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't say so, but that's actually because in the old-timey newspapers, white is the default, and if it's anything else, they'll say it probably in an offensive manner. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so the trial, the trial was uh, was five white men, three N words, and two engines. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I didn't hear what Ariana said as she passed behind you, but I do want to know what it was. She just went, "Wow." <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about how racist things were. <laughs> so. Oh, it comes out two days before the jury convenes that four of the exhumed bodies contained arsenic and one contained strychnine. And the quote from the paper is, where arsenic was used, it was found in large quantities. I do think that this was a strategic move on the part of the state to release that information so close to the grand jury convening, you're potentially poisoning poisoning the well a little bit, uh, but may, they may have, have assumed that the, the, the reward might be greater than the risk. But it's, it's it's funny to me that they had like five, four or five months before that, during which they could have released that information, but they chose two days before the grand jury convened. So I think that was on purpose. And the strychnine was in the other body that they exhumed when they did the, the nighttime exhumation of Franklin Andrews, and, but they still hadn't released the name at that point. They would soon. So Amy Archer Gilligan does go to the grand jury proceedings and looks like she's the picture of health. Uh, the grand jury, because they have uh, uh, more than two brain cells to rub together, does decide to indict her for five counts of murder and because the people in her care did not look like the picture of health. So <laughs> they looked dead. Uh, she pleads not guilty, of course. And then the final name of one of the exhumed victims is released. That was Maud Lynch. She died in February of 1916 at 33 years old. She was a weird case. She went to the Archer home after separating from her husband and her parents paid the standard lifetime term fee of $1,000. For a 33-year-old woman. Hmm. A 33-year-old woman, yeah. I have to wow. think it was yeah a step away from, from having her committed. Maybe she did actually suffer from you know, some sort of mental illness or some sort of like physical ailment. Or maybe they just, you know, were annoyed. <laughs> they were like, you're, you're 33. You're not <laughs> moving back in. Yeah, we made that bedroom into a craft room. So, yeah, that was a very strange case. And I have to, that looks definitely like Amy Archer Gilligan looked at the cost benefit analysis there of taking in a 33 year old who you have to care for for the rest of her life and only a thousand dollars. And she was like, no, I'm just going to, yeah, just going to take the thousand and you can go. I picture her with like a chart and then once they reach like their food quota of $500, they need to die. Yeah. Right. Oh my That's God. It. <laughs> so in the lead up to the trial, there are of course a lot of rumors about whether or not she'll try an insanity plea. Her lawyers, he, he scuttles all those. He says, no, 
we're not going to go with that. We're not going to go in that direction. And, but just a few weeks after he says that, the state's attorney says that she's suffering from prison psychosis. And so they continue the case on to spring. So they move it some to account for her health. But the, the state's attorney makes sure to specify that she was totally fine when she was arrested mental health wise. So this is a result of her being in jail and not an excuse for murdering 48 to 60 people. Because <laughs> there is none. And in January 1917, we see some legal movement here uh, in this, the state of Connecticut. Their legislature introduces a bill that would require homes for the elderly to be licensed and also would impose other reporting requirements on them. So actual regulation to make sure that people aren't abusing and murdering old people. Sounds like it should have been common sense, but uh, that's fine. Who am I to throw stones? So That's just silly. That seems like a waste yeah. of resources to me. Let's get those people dead, get them in the ground, and get that nitrogen back in there. What are happened to the good old days of putting our elderly on an ice floe and sending them out into the cold, cold water? I'm saying that's a waste of resources. You put them out in there. What are they? They fish food? No, I don't know. No, you put them into the ground. You till that soil. You start to grow crops with their bodies. Ew. You can do that with trees. And also now in Maine, it is legal to do Viking funerals. Send them out on the pyre and light them on fire. Nah. That is my jam. I'm moving to Maine. No, no, no. I don't like that. You know, that's that's putting a lot of that's putting a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. There. <laughs> I can see Amber going on a murder spree just because it gives her legal permission to light things on fire. I legitimately told my mom about this, and she goes, "That's how you're going to bury me, aren't you?" I'm like, huh? <laughs> like she knows it's coming. <laughs> she knows. So in February of 1917, the Archer home is sold, uh, but uh, as we'll find out in a little while, it's not empty yet. <laughs> and in March, when the spring court term would start, she's still not under any condition to undergo a trial, or as the paper put it, brooding in jail is said to have undermined her health. So finally, they say, okay, she'll be tried in June. And her counselor slash porn star, Benedict Holden, uh, tries to get a change of venue, but is denied. He complains that the state is withholding documents and is arguing so vociferously about this that the judge says, what is the matter with you today anyway, Holden? How I am astonished at your attitude. How are they arguing? Vociferously. Amber, I think somebody got a word of the day calendar for Christmas this year. <laughs> I have said this before. I have always been good at vocabulary. Damn it. We were actually just talking about this last night. <laughs> we were, that, yeah. That when she was like in grade school, she was accused of cheating on no. vocabulary. High school. Junior high. Oh. High school. AP but, English. But she was accused of cheating on vocabulary because she was so good at it. And she got a perfect. And the teacher's like, there's no way you knew all those words. Like... <laughs> And yet, there had never been a vocab quiz in that class before, so she had no way of knowing. And second of all, how did I get the answers? The, the only other time that class met was after hours, if I remember correctly. So I would have had no way. Like, I, I don't know. I can't travel in time. Christy uh, knows words. The point of the story is Christy knows words. Mm -hmm. I know words, and a lot of them. So, 
So finally, uh, yeah, honestly, I think that Holden wasn't being too bad and the, the, the judge was being a little pearl clutchy there. It, was, it didn't seem that bad from the account that I read. But the change of venue is denied. And he then asked for $500 from the state to hire more experts and co-counsel and, and stuff like that as Amy Archer Gilligan's funds have run out. And the judge says, okay, you can hire more experts, but not additional counsel. You do your own work, Sonny. <laughs> Nobody's filling out paperwork for you. They do decide that they're just going to go with one charge of murder, and that's for the Andrews death, rather than the initial five. Probably that case where they're like, we'll save these other charges in case the first one doesn't work. Because it's not like it's like, well... One capital murder charge. What will she get? Three years? Well, it's a capital murder charge. If she, if, if, if it's a home run and she's found guilty, that's death. So, so they do name the jurors right off, including occupations and hometowns, which is ridiculous. And here, but, here's their home addresses and, and their schedule, too. I mean, on the one hand part of the public record and yeah i guess we should know if we're going to have a jury of our peers we should know something about it so that they can't hide if they're if they're trying to not have a jury of our peers but on the other hand this was back when uh, a woman being tried for murder couldn't get anyone of her own gender on the jury so it's not going to be a jury of her peers anyhow <laughs> many respects so out of the 87 men initially called for the jury, they can only find 10 approved jurors. So among them, a father and son. Oh. How's that for bonding? <laughs> you wanna, do you want to send this woman to the gallows together, son? I love you, Dad. <laughs> Great. So they have to bring in 40 more potentials. And that this just goes on and on. They finally, after four days of jury selection, they managed to get enough jury. They had gone through 610 prospective jurors. That says goddamn. Yeah. That would be a record for at least a decade, if not more, in the county or state. I can't remember. But, yeah, there was an article like 10 years later that was like, well, they had to call 600 jurors for this particular murder trial and almost beating the record from the Amy Archer Gilligan trial. So at least 10 years. So, and I love just as a side note, outfit descriptions. This is my jam right here. This is my jam. <laughs> so here we go. Mrs. Gilligan sat close to her daughter, Mary Archer, aged 19. Both were garbed in black, though the daughter wore a white neck boa, high suede shoes, and a white band around her broad-brimmed black straw hat. Mrs. Gilligan wore a small black turban adorned with black fancies and a thin black morning veil. Black fancies, oh. you say? Oh, my. Black, black fancies. Black fancies. Her gown was of black silk. It's quite wow. the image, but yes, I do love... I, I, I really honestly think I probably loved the whole... A description probably for the black fancies. <laughs> and is it bad that I don't think we can actually put that as an episode subtitle? <laughs> probably not, yeah. No, that's a good move. It, even though it's not racist, it still feels like it could be in completely some manner. Completely out of context, yeah. Yeah, yeah, completely out of context, absolutely, yeah. So, 
the trial gets going and things do get heated here. After uh, King, the, the county medical examiner, testified, the defense attorney is overheard saying, it's a goddamned lie. Just like, okay. Uh, the medical examiner, I can't say that word, the medical examiner testified regarding Andrews that uh, the doctor came at 6 p.m. and Andrews was complaining of a burning in his throat. It's always arsenic. It's always arsenic when there's a burning in the throat. Uh, nausea, vomiting, and great pain. Of course, those are also, but those, it, it's so specific, that throat burning. I see it in so many arsenic cases that as soon as I see throat burning, I'm like, somebody, somebody gave this man arsenic. I know. It's crazy how many arsenic cases we've actually done. That it's like right away, you're like, that's arsenic. Like, I wouldn't even know where to buy arsenic. You can't just walk into CVS and be like, can I get two pounds of arsenic? I got big rats. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and over on Detectives by the Decade, we've had a ton just because we start in the, the you know, the, when poisoning was so hard to detect. And so it was used so and often. It was so popular. And that's why I had to say diarrhea like seven episodes in a row. Remember, so. th this is back in the day whenever they still had cocaine in sodas. So <laughs> arsenic, not a big deal. You know what, though? I really wish we could go back to that because I feel like I'd get so much more housework done. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the medical examiner testifies that while he was there, uh, Amy Archer Gilligan gave Andrew some water to take some medicine the doctor had given him. And then three hours later, uh, Archer Gilligan called the medical examiner back to the house. And he said at that point, Andrews was practically dead. The man had been painting a fence at the Archer home just that afternoon. And he declined that quickly. It's, yeah. It's almost as if and he was poisoned. Almost. Yeah. He would, I mean, let's, let's not be too suspicious and cynical, Scott. <laughs> Or let's. Who the fuck are you talking to right now? I know, right, <laughs> Mister Suspicious and Cynical. Yes, yeah. is that your name? <laughs> yeah. For, let me let me let me tell you how suspicious and fucking cynical I am. I'm fairly certain that a bunch of my neighbors are criminals, and one of the things I love the most, I, the paranormal, I love it. Don't believe don't believe like a tenth of it. <laughs> I think that was the biggest surprise to everybody whenever they heard me doing this podcast. Oh, Scott, they're doing Halloween stuff. Scott's going to go, oh, crazy fucking Elvis's ghost laid down with Jim Morrison and produced a Bigfoot baby. No, it's it's mostly bullshit. Yeah, that was a surprise. I remember several times being like, I expected this to go very differently. <laughs> yeah, I think there's that line between being interested in conspiracy theories and believing in conspiracy theories. And unfortunately... Like in your case, if you're interested in them, people frequently will automatically assume that you also believe mm -hmm. in them. Mm -hmm. I think I think the biggest the biggest uh, thing in that, and then we'll get right back. The train tracks are over there, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the biggest thing was uh, for a while I was fascinated with the whole Paul McCartney was was killed in a car accident and replaced with a lookalike. I like that one. It's fucking fascinating, and like the rest of the Beatles. That like it was like MI6 came in and replaced him with a lookalike, and the rest of the Beatles hated it. So they started putting clues on the album. Can we find the clues? You know that stuff is fascinating. It's complete bullshit. Where are you going to find two people as talented as Paul McCartney that happen to look alike? Right? Yeah, yeah. That is that is kind of kind of on the bonker side. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, Franklin Andrews' roommate, that was the, the gentleman who had died uh, after painting a fence, testified that Andrews was actually sick at 6 a.m. that morning. And he had told Amy Archer Gilligan that, hey, my roommate needs a doctor. But it was 12 hours before one was called. And in that 12 hours, I am absolutely sure that the fence painting was not his damn idea. <laughs> absolutely sure of it. I don't need any proof. I have my certainty, and that is enough. Get out there and paint the fence. You're faking. The undertaker testified that there was no arsenic in the embalming fluid because arsenic can be preservative, so they would, they would use it in embalming fluid at times. Uh, the embalming fluid was Red Falcon brand. Why? That's, that's awfully, like, adventurous for embalming Ooh. fluid. I wonder Red if Falcon. no 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 here here's a thought Red Falcon I mean that would look like a bird on fire and then you're talking Phoenix which has I wonder if that's like Red Falcon to Phoenix It's a little bit of a walk and I won't say it's a jump I'll say it's a little bit of a walk to get there but it's it's entirely possible but I just like calling it Red Falcon death juice I mean come on you're, I like that Yeah Red Falcon death juice I'll I'll drink some of that but I mean the Millennium Falcon, that's a phoenix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, okay, I can see it. You're, mm -hmm. you, all you need to do to, to win me over is bring in Star Wars. Get, get the Star Wars I'm, in there. I win. <laughs> my, my, my vulnerable points are very, very simple <laughs> and have an entire universe <laughs> dedicated to them. So there's lots to choose from. It's so. a Star Wars Transformers crossovers. That's the way Amber manipulates us. <laughs> yeah. Who wants it? It's a Millennium Falcon. It turns into Han and Chewie. Who wants it? <laughs> oh, boy. We would fight to the death. I uh, know. I already own one. You can have yours. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just steal yours. That's all right. So the undertaker also testified that he had not been paid the $109 he had billed Amy Archer Gilligan for the embalming of Andrews. She skipped out on bills a lot. This was a fairly frequent thing with her. I'm surprised that somebody didn't get mad at her for skipping out on bills all the time and report on her sooner. Just like get mad and be like, you know, I'm an undertaker and I see so many bodies from her home and so many fewer from other places that maybe there's something going on here, and damn it, that woman needs to pay me. So, and so then we have testimony from Nellie Pierce. Now, that was Franklin Andrews' sister. If you remember from the first episode, she had discovered that uh, her brother had lent Amy Archer Gilligan uh, some money shortly, like not too long before he died. They had a, a dispute over getting the money back. Amy Archer Gilligan wrote some really incredible letters that were just the self-righteous indignation of that woman was amazing to behold. It's a, it should be a national freaking monument. And so there was all that. And it was Nellie Pierce was one of the ones who was absolutely uh, integral to getting this whole case started to begin with, because nobody was looking. The, the, the paper wasn't looking. The state wasn't looking. The police weren't looking. Nobody was looking. And Nellie Pierce was like, I think there's something going on here. And she bugged everybody until they finally listened and did something. So, she comes to testify, and here the jury can see some of the discrepancies starting to show up. The doctor said that uh, he had been by at 9 p.m. the day of Andrew's death and said there's nothing he could do. And yet, it was at 10 p.m. 
that Nellie Pierce received the call from Amy Archer Gilligan saying, hey, your brother's sick, but it's just boils on his neck and there's there's no need for you to come down. And it was the very next day when she, like Nellie Pierce did come. She was like, the next morning she came, she was worried about her brother. And when she arrived, Archer Gilligan told her that her brother had died at 10, 10 p.m. and hadn't complained of any pain until 10 minutes before that, which we also know is a lie because why the hell was the doctor there three hours before, four hours before? So a friend of Andrew's testifies that Andrews had sent her a letter about two months before he died and mentioned that 20 people had died in the home since he'd entered it in September of 1912. And he died in May, I believe it was May of 1914. So uh, that's not a very long period of time to have 20 people dying. But he also said, I am all right now. I have a splendid home. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. We've been taking plenty of true crime breaks to play Best Fiends lately. It's great because it challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's a casual game, so it doesn't stress you out. And there's always something new, so it never gets old. New events, new levels, new game mechanics. One thing we all really enjoy is that you're not just doing the same few things over and over. With Best Fiends, you'll get new challenges to beat all the time. I'm on level 3788, and just when I think I've mastered it, along comes a new element to the game. Christy, did you just... Did you just preempt the level check? Did you just jump ahead? I did indeed. Okay. <laughs> So what levels are you guys on? I'm on level 980. I will never catch up to any of you ever. <laughs> I am on level 1640. And Christy already told us she is kicking our butts. Constantly. Absolutely constantly. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now, as for Amy Archer Gilligan, what's she doing during the trial? Let's let's check in with her. Well, she's over there with her eyes downcast or closed pretty much all the time and not really taking any special interest in the proceedings. Practically fell asleep at some points. I mean, really. Just, Tedious just, and boring. I'm facing the noose. Boring! Yeah. I suppose hey. whenever you spend your life, like, multiply murdering people, like, shit gets boring really quick. Like... <laughs> Yeah, you give maybe it's that adrenaline rush. You're like, well, you know, nothing's really as exciting anymore since I started murdering people. I like, love looking in the eyes as they fade away. That's my favorite part. So, like, I I feel like I can like relate to this attitude. So, like, our department was dissolved, and we have to work for the last two weeks, and so like. Every time I start to get sassy, one of my friends will be like, could you calm down? And I'm like, what are they going to do? Fire me. So, like, I feel like that's where she's at. She's like, I already, I'm out. Like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Like, what are they going to do? Mm. Hang me? Yes. Actually, they I, might. I heard I heard from, uh, from somebody I used to work with at the same place Amber's working at now. My last week there, like, one of the supervisors listened to one of a couple of my calls and went, you can really tell Scott's not going to be here very much longer. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh goodness! You can tell it's his last couple of days. <laughs> so, they in one of her victims that they had exhumed, well, in Franklin Andrews, they found twenty-three grains of arsenic in the stomach. It takes four to five to kill someone. Oh. Overkill, literally. <laughs> so. She did have some experts testify in her defense, but she did not take the stand. Her attorney's closing statement was just a pile of excuses. It was pathetic to read. It was really that student who procrastinated on his homework all night and was playing video games. And then in the morning, he's like, oh, I better scribble this out real quick. And then was asked to present it in front of the class and all of a sudden realizes that it's not worth shit and he did a horrible job and is embarrassed but needs to like absolutely like <laughs> try to make up for he's like, well, you know, the state does, has more resources than I do. And you know, I didn't have enough time to do this even though this, this trial was uh, six months after the arrest. And, uh, you know, the press, the press convicted her before she was even arrested. I mean, he's just hes just a pile of excuses. It was really annoying me to read. He also said that it's unlikely that she was guilty because of one reason. And that reason was that she had called doctors when the poisoned people were sick. But a guilty person wouldn't have called doctors. And I just disagree with that. We just don't know, you know? I disagree with that, too, because I feel like she only called doctors when she knew it was late enough that they would not pull through. And Absolutely. And like she was trying. 100 percent that yep. is what we call an alibi <laughs> exactly yes that's what we call plausible deniability so that at this exact moment when her attorney is standing up in front of the courtroom saying she can't be guilty because she called doctor she's like yep that's why i did that mm -hmm. <laughs> so that you could stand there and say that and he also said then this part is kind of true that the testimony regarding other possible victims shouldn't have been allowed we saw this in the, I think it was Roland Molyneux trial, which had been before this. And this uh, idea that, you know, that you can't bring in other crimes that haven't been proven and use that as reasons that this crime can be proved, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't, don't quite know why they got away with that. But he also seems to imply that Amy Archer Gilligan was insane. And only came to trial, only brought this to trial and to, to attempt to save her daughter's reputation. So a quote from him, are you prepared to believe that the accused woman took not one, but many lives? And for what? For the sacrifice of the life prospects of a little girl. The accused could have, been, could have claimed insanity, but she wanted to meet the issue squarely and not brand her little 18-year-old girl with a scarlet letter. By the way, her daughter... Stone Cold fucking Fox. Yeah, we have some. We have at least one one picture, painting, drawing, something, sketch. Uh, she's pretty. Yeah, good, good looking young lady. So need me a time machine and a pack of condoms. Let's do this, people. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, it's. I do. I do want to say it's good that you you're using condoms. A because uh, back then a, a lot of stuff going around, and B you're not like. I'll just go and knock up a girl in the past and then come into the future and I don't have to worry about it. You know, no, that's responsible time Try traveling. Try to find Thank me for you. child support now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Look, I have this plan. If I ever get a hold of a time machine, that whole shit of going back and killing Hitler, that's some weak-ass pussy shit. What I'm going to do, I'm going to go back and seduce Hitler's mother. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's an idea. Mm-hmm. 
So I, you know, I have these moments when I'm researching and I write something down and we've been through this a couple of times before, many times before, I write something down and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. I, and I, I'm sometimes tempted not to write it down, but it's, it's, too, it's just, I can't, I can't not. So Amber, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This is, this is all I'm going to give you from the state attorney's uh, summation of the case at the end. And uh, I think it's all anyone needs to convince you. He called the Archer home a dark murder hole. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yes, guilty, obviously. <laughs> That's all you need. You just walk up to the front of the courtroom, stand there, look at the jury, meet every single one of their eyes. And you say, she ran a dark murder hole. The state rests, ladies I'm, and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> or gentlemen. <laughs> just in so, case one of you is cross-dressing. <laughs> the trial lasted four weeks. They even convened on the 4th of July, which the newspaper said was the first time in county history. So really putting in the work. And the jury was really putting in the work. Do you guys know the deliberation time or do we want to play guessing game? I don't know the deliberation time, so I'll take a guess. I'm going to say 14 hours. Okay. Four hours. 15 minutes. Damn. Wow. I mean, the state's attorney called it a dark murder hole. I told you. <laughs> it's July 4th. I want to go home, have a picnic, have a hot dog yeah. without arsenic. I think we know the way to do this, people. <laughs> she is found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging, and the judge proclaims that this will happen on November 6th. We see of, of that year. So this is in, in July. Uh, it might have actually been in early August. I can't remember exactly when the trial ended, but uh, it, it, this is very soon after, you know, just a couple short months. That's how quickly justice uh, tried to move back in those days. And so, yeah, we see some rare emotion. She and her daughter, Mary Archer, both cry. She would be the first woman hanged in Connecticut for 130 years. Damn. And I'm going to tell you something. I looked at that case. All right. I took a quick look to see what was that case. 1786 in Connecticut. Hannah Ocuish. She was hanged five days before Christmas for killing her sister. Her sister was six. Oh. Hannah was 12. Oh. And in case you were wondering, not white. Uh. Her father was black and her mother was Native American. I, th I think it was that way. Um, but yeah, so 12 years old and she was hanged. Absolutely horrifying. <laughs> no wonder they didn't do it for another 130 years. They were like, well, God, the last time was just absolutely terrible. That's, uh, we killed a child. Let's not do this for a while. Only the men. <laughs> they, so, I'm okay with that rule. Yeah. It's a pretty good rule to have. <laughs> so on sentencing, when asked if she had anything to say, she only shook her head and mumbled nothing that anybody could hear. Let's talk about the aftermath of this verdict. This one interesting thing that happened was she had so not I, I don't know if I would necessarily call supporters, but people who were trying to save her. So potential saviors. They didn't they were fine with her being in jail. 
they didn't want her to hang. So a suffragette named Cecilia Blickensdurfer. Yes. Yes. Wife of a millionaire typewriter manufacturer. Oh, my God. It sounds like I'm making this up. (laughs) It does. This can't be real. She uh, got a nationwide campaign going to try to save Amy Archer Gilligan from the gallows. From Amy Archer Gilligan from the Galagos. Yeah, that, that, that was very close to happening just now. Um, and she circulated petitions for this cause. This was not her first go-round on this. She had been successful in a similar effort four years prior with Bessie Wakefield, who did have her death sentence commuted after efforts from m- many women to save her from the gallows. Uh, but... The thing is, is that Blickensdurfer raised funds for Wakefield's appeal, and she said she wasn't going to do that in this situation. She's like, I can't, I'll, I'll do a petition, but I'm not doing the money thing. That's it's too much, too much banking and stuff to deal with. I have to go yell votes for women on the street corner. <laughs> so I'm very busy. And my husband is making actual Blickensdurfer typewriters. He, he liked his name enough to put it on his product. If you can type it, it must be a Blickensdorfer. <laughs> Which, ironically, we can't type. type. <laughs> we don't have the little omelots above the O on the yeah. typewriter. So, but, and she said, uh, Cecilia Blickensdorfer, I'm saying that name as many times as I can. As damn well you should. I know, right? She's said to be motivated by sympathy for Mary Archer, Amy's young daughter. So... There are delays in the sentence due to appeals and such. So uh, November 6th comes and goes and the, the hanging doesn't doesn't happen. And like I said, the Cornish Molyneux case does come up in the uh, in the appeals. And so they had brought evidence about other crimes during the trial. So they didn't really get away with it because she was granted a new trial. Interestingly, the, all the justices concurred that, yes, she should get a new trial. But two of them were like, yes, she should get a new trial, but we think it's for a different reason than those other guys. <laughs> so, like, they were like, we, we got to the same place, but we came by different roads. Now, the Archer home. In April 1918, two years after the arrest of Amy Archer Gilligan, the home is sold a second time. And there's still one inmate left. There's still one guy in there. Good Lord. I know. Charles Myers, because his contract said that if the owner died, he could still live in that home and it couldn't be sold during his lifetime. Got to read that fine print. Right? Yeah. The last owners had actually let him keep his room. They they just, they, I guess they moved into the house and they were like, all right, if you're already here, I guess you can stay. They probably felt bad for him, too. But the new owner didn't want him there, and it starts to look like he's going to get kicked out. It wasn't until July 1919, so over three years after the arrest, that this is finally settled in court. Uh, The new owner is uh, not just suing for possession of the house, but also for $100 in damages, which Mr. Myers, as the newspaper said, cheerfully calls his casket money. (laughs) That's my casket money. <laughs> I think Jesus. It's, it's a 
He's, he's a poor guy who had to have paid a thousand bucks for a place to live for what he thought would be the rest of his life, and now he's getting kicked out because the bitch couldn't start murdering people. <laughs> calm I have a little bit of sympathy for him. Calm, calm. Nah, you go ahead, go fucking nuts. I don't give a shit. He's just so sad. The case does end with him being evicted, but they actually this 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 kind of broke me a little bit. He goes to the hearing. But he's hard of hearing. And that's not an intentional pun. There's just no other way to say it. <laughs> so he doesn't hear when the order to evict him comes down. And no one wanted to break the news to him. So this is in the newspaper. And they're like, yeah, somebody's going to tell him tomorrow. Poor guy. Mm. Poor guy. He ended up at the town farm slash poorhouse. An interesting way of dealing with the, wait, the, the, wait, the issue of homelessness. Wait, they actually sent him to live on a farm? They did, yes. But for real. <laughs> so, uh, and it's not too bad, it seems like. Uh, a quote from the paper. No, Jimmy, your grandpa loves it there. Don't worry. <laughs> it's not bad at all. He's got plenty of other grandpas to play with. <laughs> Feel plenty of rabbits to chase. <laughs> we give him lots of treats. Uh, so the paper says he has a bright, cheery room in spick and span order all to himself and was permitted to bring his own bed and bedroom furnishings. And as for Mr. Myers, he said himself, this was his quote about the whole situation. Mrs. Archer was the first to be evicted. Myers, the last. See, I like this guy. <laughs> And he's cheery about it. He's like so cheerful. That's my casket money. You know, <laughs> like that, that young whippersnapper wants to take my casket money. Good Lord. Get off my lawn. <laughs> so there's going to be another trial. And it begins in June 1919. Keep in mind that there's been one trial. We've had appeals. We've gotten to the second trial. And that was still one month before Charles Myers got evicted. <laughs> So all that time has passed and so much happening in the courts with the murder trial, but that guy's still able to live in the house. It's kind of amazing. So it's said that this one is going to be the battle of the alienists, which I think is, is definitely a good, you know, like uh, subtitle for the, the, the movie poster. <laughs> I trial like that. two, the battle of the alienists. I like that a lot, actually. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I can picture it in my head. So uh, this time it's going to be the battle of the alienists as to whether she was sane when the murder was murders were committed. But they're just doing the Andrews murder, I guess. Uh, a lot of the same witnesses testify, but the defense this time does not cross-examine them, which indicated that they were going to go for an insanity defense. Because they're like, oh, wait, I guess we don't even need to talk to them if we're just going to say, well, she wasn't sane. So, and they do. They... Go with the uh, insane due to drugs. Many, 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 many drugs. Uh, they have a druggist testify that he'd sold her. Okay, actually, I'm just going to go ahead. In case it wasn't in any of the articles, do you know how many tablets of morphine he'd sold her over three years? 72. Uh, 430. 20,500. Holy fuck. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
uh, over three years. Sometimes 250 at a time, sometimes 1,000 at a time, other times in smaller quantities. One time in 1915, as the Federal Drug Act was about to uh, be put into place that would limit the quantities you could get, he sold her 5,000 tablets. Which is amazing, because now you can't even get anything past Tylenol with codeine for a broken bone. Yeah. Yep, yep. She never had a prescription, according to him, but later testimony says that the medical examiner did prescribe her morphine and was trying to get her off of it at some point, trying to wean her off. And that's all from one store. So if there are two druggists in town, it might be 41,000. <laughs> just saying, we don't know. Now, for whatever it's worth, just a reminder, none of this came up in the first trial. Not a bit. And again, the attorney seems to be like, oh, well, she wanted to save her daughter the embarrassment. But damn, we're going to get into some of what her daughter went through. She, she didn't save her daughter much. So uh, this also, the, the testimony, the, the questions put to the druggist, who is the same one who sold her the arsenic. So he's keeping he, he's sending he's selling her mass quantities of both arsenic and morphine and seeing nothing wrong with this situation at all. Just so I long mean, as the money's flowing in. Who gives a shit? Yep. Money, right? Money. This was a moment in court that seemed to be uh, a, a, a worthy of reporting. He was asked what he thought of, of Mrs. Archer Gilligan. He said he thought her as good a businesswoman as the average woman. But uh, the women present in the courtroom had a little, a little laugh at that. So he modified it to as good a businesswoman as the average person. Okay, because the first time it sounded like an insult, like bitches are dumb. <laughs> yep, yep, and that's that's how all the women in the courtroom told you. They're like, "Listen to this asshole, God." <laughs> so, and he's so smart. He sold that murderer woman like metric tons of arsenic and morphine, and thought this is fine. You ladies, go ahead and finish this podcast up. I'll be over here on the MGTOW forums. <laughs> so, now. The moment that we've been waiting for. The moment uh, when Christy reads a headline in the newspaper that says, Insanity streak runs in the family. Mm, here it comes. This is your moment, Scott. I teed it up for you. Yeah. Hit the ball. It doesn't run. It gallops. Practically gallops, but... God, you're so close. See? See? <laughs> Why'd you do that to me? <laughs> it doesn't run. Insanity runs in my family. Practically gallops. And if that's familiar to you, this whole thing should have been familiar to you. So we'll get there. So this doctor had actually, he's not necessarily like, it's not because he's her doctor. He had gone to school with Amy Archer Gilligan. So he explained the family history, which we touched on in part one and all Recap straight from the paper's account of his testimony. And so you'll have to excuse the rather horrifying terminology I'm about to use. I'm quoting directly from someone who really didn't know better. Uh, so, oh, I hate all this. Uh, one sister was born an idiot and died when she was about 10 years. Oh, Amber's face. Amber's face is <laughs> something. I can't tell. It's siblings, it might have been born an idiot, but I don't say it. I can't tell. It's all frozen for me. Oh, another sister went insane and has since died. John, a brother, is now in the insane asylum at Middletown, 
while a third sister is insane, under restraint, and never allowed to leave her home. John's tendencies were toward homicide, which he once attempted. The sister, now at home, once jumped from a garret window and broke her leg. Once she attacked the witness himself, Dr. Page knew of no insanity in Mrs. Gilligan's parents. Except the idiot child, oh God help me, the other children were bright as ordinary children, their insanity not manifesting itself until they were about 20 years old. He never recalled attending Mrs. Gilligan, nor did he know she was a drug addict. Oh, my Lord. So the, then they put the matron of the jail on the stand. And this is kind of... Whew, uh, so they they just went ahead and called solitary confinement the jail dungeon. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, they, they just went ahead with that, and there, there's there's a, just a, a great quote coming up about that. But yeah, so the matron testified that she'd had to put Archer Gilligan in the jail's dungeon because her constant crying was annoying the other inmates. <laughs> this was solitary confinement below the ground floor. No windows, but somehow some daylight. I think maybe there was some... It was a wooden-walled room, so I'm thinking maybe cracks in the wood, you know, or between pieces, plus slats of wood or something like that, that, that some daylight from outside could kind of peek through. Uh, and only a bed. That's it. Just a bed. I'm assuming a chamber pot of some kind. Uh, it was... Un, the, the matron was unsure how long Archer Gilligan, Gilligan was in the dungeon. Both lawyers kept using the word dungeon during their examination and cross-examination, they were both emphasizing it. It seemed they both had a purpose to it. And then when the other used it in certain ways, they would object. So they're both doing this. They're like, you can't say dungeon that way. And they're like, you just did that same thing. What are you, hypocrites? <sighs> so until the judge finally said, well, we'll all consider the dungeon a very pleasant place and go on. Oh, <laughs> this is a nice dungeon. It's just like the farm they took grandpa to. <laughs> Yeah. And there were also accusations that the matron had placed a phonograph in front of Archer Gilligan's cell and played it all night long. So a little bit of torture going on here. Enhanced interrogation without the interrogation. So, and the state attorney cross-examined witnesses pretty hard, trying to prove, as the paper said, that Amy Archer Gilligan had always appeared normal though a bit queer. It's just, just awful terminology coming fast and hard this episode, you guys. It never ends. <laughs> it's just an avalanche of terrible, terrible old-timey words. <laughs> Used in a bad, like, you, you know. <sighs> it's just anyhow. So, now, Amy Archer Gilligan's oldest sister testified, really bolstering the whole family insanity history and she talked about how Amy had a hard time finding gainful employment, said that she walked and talked a little funny, but didn't, there's no real good description of that, except that she was walking like she was afraid to put her feet down on the ground. I can sort of picture it, but it looks very like, like it should be like physical comedy and not uh, somebody with some mental health concerns. So I don't know. A roommate from her school teaching days said she tended to have Nervous and crying spells for no accountable reason. The testimony brought up stuff like her demonstrated unsuitability for teaching in her 20s. We talked about in episode one. General extravagance that seemed to start around, again, her 20s. 
her odd behavior at her wedding when she hired 10 cabs for guests that weren't coming, her extravagance after James Archer died, the 30 bottles of ketchup she sent to her parents for some reason. (laughs) The ketchup returns. The forced remodeling of her parents' home, extravagance at her second husband's funeral with the six priests. This is some bonkers stuff. This is beautiful. (laughs) I'm getting a little choked up. Yeah. And then they bring up her drug use and how her sister found out about it in 1913. And how, quote, at times she was found at the telephone talking to nobody but holding the hook down. Mary said her mother often had imaginary talks over the phone, which then led to this little exchange between uh, the uh, defense and the prosecutor. Uh, this, this, the prosecutor turned to the defense lawyer and said, you've done that yourself. <laughs> He's like, you can't call that crazy. You do that too. So, and the, the, the Mr. Holden, the defense lawyer, he didn't deny it. So that happened. So, and then, like, it seems like Amy Archer Gilligan is either actually truly out of it or putting on an act. We don't really know. Uh, but at times, when shaken from a stupor, the accused would look up at the witness, who was her sister, but would not recognize her by name. It's you. 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 Was all the accused would say. There's something going on there. Her sister admitted that she did want this to end with an acquittal for Amy. She said in cross-examination that while her sister had uh, suffered from mental illness for years, severe mental illness, she did have periods of lucidity and was, as her sister put it, bright in a cute sort of way. Oh, (laughs) she figured out how to work the stove. Is what <laughs> I'm hearing. The, but still not the telephone. Not the telephone. <laughs> yeah. Also said that she had never talked to a doctor about her sister's issues, despite the fact that her sister was responsible for fragile human lives. And uh, when they were asking her about it, like, did you did you call the doctor, you know, and or why didn't you call the doctor? And she said, well, I never thought she was making much money. That, that wasn't what they were asking. <laughs> That's a whole different thing. So, And when pressed by the state attorney, Hugh Alcorn, uh, Amy's sister said she didn't feel that she could or should add to the family's troubles by getting Amy committed, even though she'd done the very same thing to multiple brothers and sisters, so not a new road for her to walk down. Another of the sisters said, quote, I can say before almighty God that the woman was insane. I would say it if it were my last words and I couldn't say anything else. Wow. That's adamant. That is. So said that she was ashamed and she didn't commit Amy because she was married, which was that like, that was like for a few months. And because if she got violent, Mary or some doctors were around to take care of her. But when they describe this, it doesn't really specify if there actually were violent periods that had to be attended to, or if that was just kind of like, well, if she does get violent in the future, she has people there to take care of her. There's not really any specification either way, which I think is a distinction that should be made. (laughs) I I feel like that's what they're saying. Like, well, she got married, so she wasn't our problem anymore. Yeah. 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 But that, but like uh, what I'm talking about is the, the idea of 
did she have violent spells? And the way right. that the testimony comes across, it, it, it's really uncertain whether she did and there were people to take care of it or wh- whether that was just kind of like, you know, conjecture that if she did, if she did have them in the future, it was all good. She had people to take care of her like, you know, a, a man, because that's that, that solves everything. It does. God, yes, it does. So her, <laughs> Amy's sister said she thought Amy knew it was wrong to poison people with arsenic, but... That was she was not of sound mind enough to know that she'd get punished for it. So, kind of like knew it was wrong, but didn't really think about the illegality and the consequences, sort of. And uh, then we have possibly my favorite witness, the triple threat, Frank Harrington of Windsor, who is engaged in the plumbing, heating, and undertaking business there. Whoa! Wow. <laughs> So do you want uh, this? Uh, do you want this uh, gravesite to have uh, <laughs> to have gas and water? Yeah, right. Make exactly. sure Grandma's super comfortable. He said that Amy had the hack mania, as the paper put it. As far as like she was always, she would hire the, the the time that she did it for her wedding was not the only time that she hired an empty cab for no reason. She would hire empty cabs and send them to funerals. Not even people she necessarily knew, not friends, not relatives, just random people. She'd just send them, send, it, send, it, send cabs to that funeral, empty, for no, for no reason. Also said that she seemed to be pretty dazed sometimes, which 20,500 morphine tablets will have that effect. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the day of Andrew's death is discussed again. But uh, we get more of uh, Amy's reality that day. Her sister testified that Amy had been in a stupor all day and needed help from Mary to get dressed. And Dr. King, the medical examiner, uh, he said that when he came that day to attend to Franklin Andrews, he said to Amy's sister that Mrs. Gilligan should be sent to an asylum. He said it that day. And... So uh, that was definitely like, well, uh, you're a doctor. I suspect you can uh, maybe help with that effort, maybe. You wanna? You wanna? So uh, that day, the sister went automobiling with Amy's daughter, Mary. (laughs) You mean taking a car ride? Yes, exactly. And some of her friends. uh, And when she came home, she said that Amy seemed more like herself. And then the sister went to bed, but at no point, she didn't find out until the next day that Franklin Andrews had died that night. Amy never mentioned it. She was just like, yeah, I'm doing okay. Doing a little better. Everything's fine. Everything's great. No, nobody died 20 minutes ago. You know, (laughs) like, and so, yeah, I kind of feel like that's, I kind of feel like it it maybe it could be related to the drug use, but I also feel like maybe these days stupors, Scott, you know how sometimes you say that there's a, some weird, almost supernatural element to something? Yes, yes. Even I, though even though I believe like 99% of the paranormal is utter bullshit, it, man, sometimes it's just the, everything lines up too well. And you got to believe yeah. there's some intelligence saving these criminals. In, in this case, I feel like there's like a dark, if, if there was anything, like a dark force at work and i'm not saying this is actually true i'm just saying like this is like some some kind of weird notion that flies through my head that i don't give a lot of credence to but it feels to me like once andrews died 
it was like the fever broke. She had been in a stupor all day and out of it and drugged up and everything. And then he died and she was like, okay, well, that's done now. I can return back to my normal self. That's what it feels like to me. Mm. But uh, Mary Archer took the stand, so Amy's daughter. And at this point, even the judge did some questioning. So the judge is getting in on the action, guys. She testified that her mother took six morphine tablets from the cupboard every morning and that if she didn't take them, she would be, quote, a maniac, staggering and dazed. She first noticed all this in 1912 at age 14. Her mother never went out without taking morphine, uh, but she also said that her mother's instability started around the time her father died. This poor girl was constantly afraid. She lived with this never-ending fear that her mother was just going to give away all their property because of how she was constantly throwing money at people. And she was ashamed of her mother. She wouldn't even have friends over. And even the day, the day that the cops came to arrest her, when they came to the door, she invited them in. They sat in like the parlor somewhere, and she went to the cupboard, and she, she popped some morphine. I mean, time of stress, I guess, naturally. You know, you, you go to the you go to your crutches. Now, did you offer the police any? Are you being a good hostess? <laughs> no, no, she's a bad hostess. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? The police they could have could have easily found some because Mary testified that there were tons of empty morphine boxes and bottles all out in the barn. The cops went out there, saw them, and didn't bother with them. Well, that's they not what they were. They were looking for bodies, though. Yeah. They don't care about and arsenic. Drugs. Yeah, and arsenic. So. Three alienists testified for the defense, and all of them concur that by their examination, she is insane. And the quote is, the accused was subject to irresistible impulses arising from her diseased condition. And so it's considered a constitutional psychopathic state aggravated by morphine. And we have some old-timey, crimey, classics. One of the alienists testified in the Harry Thaw trial. Another one testified in the Hans Schmidt trial. So if you haven't heard those episodes, there's some good stuff. Go back and listen to them. They said that she was not faking the insanity. And even if she was, and this is a direct quote from an alienist, most people who simulate insanity are insane. Good to know. (laughs) Oh, so with that, the defense rested. And so the, the, the state put up their case. It was, it was very similar to the first time, but they did bring in some stuff to refute some of the information that, that the defense had brought in. Like, you know, that whole idea that Amy had forced this whole um, remodeling on her parents. They had a, a builder come in who was like, it was all three of the sisters. They were all involved in it. But it wasn't just her. No one at the house protested and she paid the whole bill. Um, and But she had told him that the house was going to be an old folks home. Hmm. A new murder factory. Yay. A second. Second murder, murder hall. hall. <laughs> if, if she and H.H. Holmes just could have fucked, we would have had one of the most prolific old folks homes in history it's so funny because like i mentioned to we were uh doing uh these couple of weeks to chris garcia and he he said he mentioned h.h H. holmes he's like oh so a lady h.h H. holmes eh mm-hmm. he didn't say it that way because he doesn't talk that way but sometimes in my head i make him talk that way so 
And there were several other people that they had testify uh, that knew or had dealings with her, including a doctor, and said she'd been perfectly sane. One even said she was a smart and nice woman. Mm, That's that's taking a little far. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the state is supposed to have even more witnesses, both lay people and experts, when court adjourns on Friday, June 27th. Uh, and they were supposed to have them the next day, even though it was a Saturday. So they're still going to be coming to court on Saturday. But everything actually is really quiet in the press for several days until they re- actually reconvene on Wednesday, July 2nd. And there is a bombshell. She changes her plea to guilty to murder in the second degree. And the trial is over. That's, that's it. That's it for the trial. I mean, all that work for her to be like, okay, well, just make it second degree and I'll, it's fine. And a state attorney, Hugh Alcorn, said, I am prepared to accept this plea with commitment to prison for life. I have reached this conclusion after long deliberation and with some reluctance. In my opinion, she is guilty not only of this murder, but also of others. I have never entertained a doubt as to her sanity. The judge immediately sentences her to life in prison. This time she doesn't really cry or react, but her daughter did cry. Uh, Amy tried to comfort her. And they were allowed to spend a little time together before Amy was taken to prison. And I'd like to note, just a little side note, the article about that is right next to an article with a name that caught my eye. It's about some suffragist news, which mentions Catherine Houghton Hepburn, suffrage leader. And uh, her daughter would uh, grow up to be a movie star. So that's Catherine Hepburn. Jennifer Connelly. Not that one. Okay. So. She, Amy Archer Gilligan is sent to the state prison where she did seem to behave herself for about five years or so. And then something just happened. Uh, in 1924, she had a sudden two-week period during which she was what the papers called a disturbing element. And they also called her so troublesome that examination of her mental condition was considered necessary. After that examination, which was at the request of the, the warden of the prison... She was committed to the, this is a new one. I think they just kept on changing the the name to various, uh, what would eventually become offensive terms. But it was the State Hospital for the Demented in Middletown. I don't know why that's funny to me. Under some episodes, and there's still some interesting names for asylums. The State state Hospital for the Looney Tunes, go buttfuck yourself. (laughs) And as far as her behavior was concerned that that brought all this on, the prisoner appeared to be unwilling to do anything she had been requested to do. Matron said that she acted as though she would not try to understand what was requested of her. At no time has the prisoner been violent. A doctor who examined her said that she was suffering from a mild form of insanity. Wait, 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 wait. she's gone insaner? (laughs) <laughs> she she got less insane because it's a mild form of insanity and before they were like in court they were like psychopathic aggravated by morphine and now they're like eh, she's mildly, mildly amber i'm sorry i cut you off you were saying i was the thing that really stuck out to me there was that she was acting like she didn't understand what was going on what are the chances that she didn't actually understand what the fuck was going on like <laughs> honestly I think she was just like, you know what? I've had it here. I'm just going to, uh, I'll cause a little ruckus. I won't behave myself. I'll annoy them to the point that they want to send me away. And then I'll go somewhere that's a little less, you know, not great by any means, but not prison. 
So, and that's what's what they do. And but but the condition was considered temporary insanity, and her stay at the institution was also supposed to be temporary. It was not. She would go on to spend the rest of her life there. She was said to have spent her time knitting and chatting, chatting and knitting, also said to be devoutly religious. And quote, more clothes from the newspaper. She dresses in black, high-collared dresses and button shoes, almost as if she still lived as she did in her Windsor boarding house. The hands that once fed arsenic to old people are now continually at work, sewing for the benefit of churches. And another newspaper article noted that at Middletown State Hospital, the mortality rate is only a fraction of what it was at the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. I'm not surprised. Yeah, right? There's nobody running around pouring arsenic down people's throats. Imagine that people might be able to survive if you don't have that. But, <sighs> I said in the last episode I was going to try and figure out, because she was committed to the Middletown Asylum, Lucy Durand had been there last we heard in 1916. Lucy Durand committed by Amy Archer Gilligan and her husband. And so I was like, oh, my God, if they were there together, that's just awkward. Great. And yeah, like she Lucy Duran was the one who said, I would rather go to hell than go back to Amy Archer Gilligan's house. And Amy Archer Gilligan was like, uh, then I'll come to you. <laughs> awkward. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. Now, I, I, I'm sorry to say I'm very sorry to say that after much, much research, I could not find mention of Lucy Durand anywhere. Not a not an obituary, not a grave, nothing. And so I don't know. It was eight years after we last saw her in the asylum. So entirely possible that she had gotten out since then and also entirely possible that she'd passed. Uh, but the odds of them really running into each other, man, whew. They, a decade before this, there had been over 2,500 patients at this hospital and it was very likely that this number wasn't changed unless it was to increase because it would reach its peak population in 1951 at 3,000 patients at the hospital. So running into each other, probably pretty unlikely, especially considering that maybe they might keep the, the, the you know, con criminal patients away from the general population. Perhaps one would hope, but why would I think that old timey people would think that way? I don't know. It's, I, I don't learn. I don't learn. And um, this, I, I kept following this through the years. Mentions of her in the newspaper from the Knoxville Journal in 1950. A recounting of the trial 30 years ago ended thusly. A newspaper man and a police captain teamed together to prove that Mrs. Amy Archer Gilligan was not what she seemed to be, an angel to the aged. In the end, Mrs. Gilligan had the last smile. Both the newsman and the officer are dead, but she is still spry at 77. Kind of a big WTF moment in the paper. Like, that. why, why are you making me so sad? Yeah, it's all Since the morphine. She, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Preservatives. Um, she was spry for another dozen years or so until her health started to fail in March 1962. She died the following month. Newspapers at the time had her age at 87 which would give us yet another birth year of 1875, 
but most sources do now have her being 89 when she passed. So that, that sticks to that uh, 1873 birth year. And she is the only of her siblings not to be listed on the family tombstone. Well, I mean, yeah, good reason. But yeah. uh, she also outlived all of her siblings. Apparently, being a, a murderous, horrible person is really good for the longevity. She took the life of all those old people and put it into herself. Yeah. That's what my brother does Yeah, with the people he dates. He steals their youth. I'm convinced of it. He does look still really young. He really does. So, and then another question I had was, what happened to Mary Archer? This she changed I, her name and ran far, far away from that shit. Is what that is also my theory. I searched and searched and searched everywhere I could possibly think to search to find her. Uh, and after 1919, she pretty much disappears. And I'm going to say good for her. I, I I put up a brave front. Uh, I, I made it look like I gave a shit about my mom. Time for me to move on. Exactly, exactly. And, and But in whatever new life she found for herself away from all the pain of having her mother be a, a murderess who killed many people with arsenic. Including I her do, father. Including her father, yeah. Uh, most likely. I do have to wonder if she ever went to see... Arsenic and old lace. I would have. I would have too. So this was based on the Amy Archer Gilligan case. Joseph Kesserling, a playwright, actually asked Hugh Elkhorn, the prosecuting attorney for the state, for some help to write a play about the murder factory. So Alcorn did help him get some court documents. Did not think that the end product was terribly amusing, but the rest of us did. So at first it was titled Bodies in the Basement, and it was very, very not funny. But he got some ace producers in to help him out. They rewrote it. They changed the title, Arsenic and Old Lace. And the setup is two sisters instead of one woman, two, like, tottering, adorable old ladies. They invite lonely men into their home, lonely old men into their home and poison them, then keep the bodies in the basement when the play starts, it's 12 and about to be 13. This became a big hit on Broadway with a show run of 1,444 shows after its opening in 1941. Critics called it the funniest play in years, a new high in hilarity, and said that the murderous sisters Abby and Martha Brewster were, quote, two of the most lovable characters you'd care to meet. On second thought, would you? And the review ends with, you're a fit subject for the asylum yourself if you pass up this one. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> I know, God they just don't stop. Damn it. They just won't stop. So it was turned into a movie in 1944 starring Cary Grant, Raymond Massey, and Peter Lorre. If you haven't seen it, I beg of you, please, please go see the movie it is absolutely hilarious that is where the line uh came from that the uh, <laughs> i teed up for scott and he <laughs> was like i'm just gonna mess with her head now <laughs> can i can i throw in a little uh a, a little bit of trivia about peter laurie yeah absolutely so 
in in 1977, uh, Kenneth Bianchi and his cousin murdered a bunch of people. They were the Hillside Stranglers, right? One of their victims, one of their victims, uh, was Angelo Bueno. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna have to edit that out. God damn. One of their victims uh, was uh, Catherine Lori Baker. Let me, uh, let me look this up here because I just realized that I should have that. So I'm going to edit the fuck out of this. I don't care. I'm going to have a ton of editing to do anyway. So they, they take Catherine Lori Baker in. They abduct her. They're, they're going to they're gonna murder her, right? And they're going through her wallet. And they look and they go, why do you have a picture of you and Peter Laurie? And then she goes, I'm Peter Laurie's daughter. You're free to go. We're big fans. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's like a darker version of when people stole Mr. Rogers' car. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he re- returned it like three days later because they were like, we're, we're real sorry. We, we like you a lot. You're a very <laughs> nice man. That is so funny. Um, I Okay, so... I first, I, I was a huge and continue to be a classic film uh, lover. Really started in like my, my teens. And, but back then, of course, it was like, you know, you, you would be lucky to, to catch an entire movie from the very beginning on like Turner Classic Movies or whatever. So when I watched Arsenic and Old Lace, and I can still remember the night because I was just, up, I was uproariously laughing in, in my living room. I probably, it was late at night, so I probably kept half my family up giggling over Cary Grant. Um, and so I probably caught it on Turner Classic Movies like five or ten minutes in, you know. And so I didn't quite see the beginning, and I never really had. That was the only time I saw it until uh, I rented it for Jackson and I to watch. And this was during like the first year we were married, I think. So keep in mind, I missed the first five to ten minutes. Well, the movie is set on Halloween. And they announced that at the beginning. I had missed that. So there's all this Halloweeny atmospherics, you know, setting being built up at the very beginning, you know, with the music and the wind and the graveyard and all that. And Jackson looks at me and he goes, "Is this a Halloween movie?" And I'm like, "No, it's just a, it's just a movie, guys. It's not a Halloween movie." And then up on the <laughs> screen pops Halloween night or October 31st or whatever, and I was like, "I might be wrong." It's a Halloween movie the same way Die Hard is a Christmas film, just barely. Yeah. Die Hard is totally a Christmas movie. I would say the 13 bodies in the basement definitely qualifies as scary Halloween but stuff. adorable serial killers. They are. They're so cute. So, yeah, it is an excellent, excellent movie. You should watch it, and then you should let us know how you feel about it. Uh, so, yes. And that is all I have on Amy Archer Gilligan, this two-episode extravaganza. Do you guys have anything I missed? I just want to get up and go to the bathroom again. I've been drinking so much water. Oh, dear. Well, we will race through the end here then. Yay. So, if you're not the Patreon type, you can also support us by uh, giving us money on PayPal. Any amount of money will do via our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You will also get a shout-out at the end of the show. So, there is that. Um, and uh, you rate, review, subscribe, blah, 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 all that stuff. Facebook, Twitter, we are old-timey crimey there. Scott's putting up lots of cool media related to the case, so you can see all these pictures and stuff. And sometimes this, this is not just stuff that you would find with a, a quick Google. Like, for instance, with the Amy Archer Gilligan case, I have, like, I don't know, 
seven to 10 pictures, I think, that I, I, I screen grabbed from newspaper articles and such. So, you know, like that's stuff that wouldn't show up on Google Images necessarily. And don't forget, we have merch. Link is in the show notes. And I'm going to say that's it. That's all my bullshit. So, uh, real quick, what are we up to this week, guys? I am, uh, I'm not certain. We'll find out. I, I imagine it's going to involve 3D printing, uh, pizza, and pornography. Probably some Transformers as well. I was going to say, you're going to get some Transformers in there, too? Mm-hmm. <laughs> try, and, try and get all four of those things to coalesce. <laughs> A little Godzilla. I have been enjoying the new Godzilla series on Japanese Netflix. Don't ask me how I can get Japanese Netflix. It's not important. But the new Godzilla series, Singular Point, I can't wait for you round-eyed Gaijin to be able to see that in your TV. Oh, well, I'm sure we're very excited. <laughs> Amber, what Why did you, you just call me? <laughs> round-eyed Gaijin. <laughs> oh, what are you up to? So I am... Um trying to figure out my future that's uh that's what i'm really working on doing school and trying to find a new job and all that fun stuff so yeah not super exciting but super stressful mm-hmm. yeah change and, and all that can be very stressful until it, it settles down so uh but it, it could be a, a, a door opening to a brighter future or something corny like that I'm also going to go to the liquor store after hearing that line. <laughs> You're welcome. All I do every, every night that we record is try to give you motivation to go to the liquor store. You succeed, mostly. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. So uh, I, I think we might go uh, for dinner sometime this week. Uh, maybe go get some sushi. I'm thinking about that. And yeah, I'm just going to keep on writing and working on stuff. So I got got some some stuff I'm working on. Oh, and we need to get a, our land surveyed because we're putting up trees and they were putting up a fence. And according to the the records online, uh, they've been mowing ten feet of our yard for the past several years. So I'm going to find out if that's the case. So yeah, that's my very exciting exciting adult life. <laughs> land surveyors. Wow, that's this is I was promised that I would be able to uh, just eat cake all the time. And that was all adulthood was. And now it's like land surveyors and mutual funds. Yeah. Like I had really hoped that there would be a lot more just buying frosting and eating the whole tub in my adult life as a child. Yeah. Like, <laughs> There's not a lot of it. It's really, I mean, there could be, but once you reach the age where you can, you're like, but I shouldn't. And then the shouldn't really kicks in and it's unfortunate. That bit of... But it's, it's, it's not even just shouldn't. It's like you take one spoonful and you're like, oh God, why did I do that? My stomach. Oh, I think I have heartburn. Oh, Jesus. That like, is also just, true. Yeah. It's not fun anymore. It's yeah. never fun. It's never, never fun. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, that's that's what we're all doing. Very exciting lives that we... Your favorite historical true crime podcasters are living this week with job hunts, pizza transformer, 3D printing, porn, and surveyors. So she yeah, said, that's- this is how much of a child I actually am. She said job hunts. I thought she said job of the hut. Job of the hut and 3D printing porn. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So yeah, as always, listeners, thank you for listening to our filthy words, and we will see you with some more historical true crime goodness and badness next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.
My sources this week are Michael Newton, an encyclopedia of modern serial killers via Murderpedia, Historic Buildings, Connecticut, Find a Grave, ConnecticutHistory.org, the New England Historical Society, the following newspapers from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, the Newtown Bee, Hartford Current, the Journal, and the Meriden Morning Record, as well as newspapers from the Library of Congress. My sources for this week are the ever-popular Wikipedia, the slightly less popular but still as important Murderpedia, the ConnecticutHistory.org article on Windsor's Murder Factory, ThoughtCo.com, and the just lovely, na- uh, lovely named New York Times.com article, Whatever Went Wrong with Amy, by Bill Ryan. <laughs> My sources this week are ConnecticutHistory.org, ThoughtCo.com, Murderpedia.org, Grunge.com, and some articles from Newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Chris Garcia.